This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at the intersection of school financing and the climate emergency. Should green infrastructure updates in schools be financed primarily through grants or loans? Every week, another school is shut down because of asbestos. They find asbestos and they have to shut the school down and then the students have to go somewhere else. They have to bus the students to other places and and it's extremely disruptive. That's something that's happened quite a bit in Philadelphia. I think we had up to 12 schools closed last year because of asbestos. They are kind of allocated into different areas, but you know, elementary schools, people like to walk and they have their routines and that really is disruptive, like Dave mentioned. With me to discuss this topic are David Backer and Akira Drake-Rodriguez. David Backer is an associate professor of education policy at Westchester University of Pennsylvania. And Akira Drake-Rodriguez is an assistant professor at the Weizmann School of Design at the University of Pennsylvania. Their new article is entitled, Movements at the Fiscal Monetary Crossroads, Financing a Green New Deal for Schools in Philadelphia. David Backer and Akira Drake-Rodriguez, Thanks so much for joining Fresh Ed. Hi there. Thanks, Will, for having us. Yeah, thank you. You know, in your new article, you talk all about Philadelphia schools and financing of buildings. But maybe to start, could you just sort of describe the physical state of schools in Philadelphia? Yeah, sure. The state of the schools has been pretty well documented for at least a few decades at this point. The schools in Philadelphia, there are about 216 um, distinct school facilities that house about 279 schools. The schools were built largely between 1910 and 1950. So they're at this point very old facilities. Some of them have been modernized, but for the most part, we're looking at facilities that were built with a lot of what we now know are toxic substances. Um, so the, the environmental hazards within these schools are millions of square feet of asbestos, lead in the paint and plasters of these buildings lead in the water feeder pipes, which makes the water, you know, undrinkable for students, um, as well as mold, as well as pretty much um, inoperable air conditioning and HVAC systems in, I would say, about 90 schools. So right now, for example, we're in the middle. This is the second week of classes. It's about 95 degrees here in Philadelphia. And these schools that don't have air conditioning are on half-day schedules. So they dismiss around 12. And this is something that's happened for at least the last four or five years as the summers get hotter and longer. You know, this happens as well when it's too cold in the schools. Um, the schools themselves, in, you know, outside of the environmental hazards, the schools themselves are not very modern. So they were constructed that there are four librarians that are employed for all these district schools, you know, so a lot of these schools don't have libraries, auditoriums, cafeterias, modern bathroom facilities. And so the state of the schools is not just the health aspect of it, of removing these environmental hazards, but in general, you know, modernize them for today's educational needs, for the, for today's social needs. And that's really kind of, kind of the big overall set of issues for the condition of school facilities. Why has the city sort of updated schools over the decades, right? It would seem that a lot of these issues should have been addressed sort of slowly over time as they have become 
noticed and the different types of facilities that school needs also need to just I assume that they would just sort of be updated over time like why hasn't that happened uh money honestly again when these schools were constructed the city was growing by tens and hundreds of thousands of new residents and just as quickly saw that population decline, particularly in the public schools. So in 1990, there were about 200,000 students enrolled in the school district. Now, you know, 2023, we're looking at maybe 115, 120,000 students in traditional public schools. Another 70,000 are in charter schools. And so that that is roughly the same number. Our population has increased during that time period. So we're seeing not only are people opting out of public schools who have been in Philadelphia, but also this population growth is not changing it. So we've experienced as a city um, a near bankruptcy declaration in the 90s as well, a wage tax, you know, property tax abatements that kind of limit property tax revenue and generally have this seen a very kind of overall draconian cuts in the school district's budget. Pennsylvania is also one of the most regressive states when it comes to um, financing local school districts. And so very little assistance coming in from the state, uh, the age of the buildings, the kind of needs of the students, all kind of, you know, it's like the worst of the situation. There's really just not a lot of options Federal governments are only giving Title I funds. Um, we are a Title I district, which means 100% of our students qualify for free or reduced lunch. However, that's really like a drop in the bucket as it relates to the intense capital needs that these facilities need. Is there an estimate of what it would actually cost to sort of upgrade and modernize and make the schools safe? Dave, do you have a recent number? I still, we, there's like a, a number that floats around of five billion, but at this point, it's um, probably from 2017, 2018. It's kind of a, an older number. Right. And even in that report, they give a threshold that could be as high as, I think, nine or 10 billion. The number that's communicated kind of in the city, you know, is usually 4.5, 5 billion. But I think if you look under the hood of that number, that's probably conservative. And again, yeah, as Akira had said, that's coming from 2017, 2018. And the district has not released the 2020 uh, facilities assessment reports uh, in full. So we actually don't have those numbers. I was just going to add to a couple of things that Akira had said. Um, there's like this sort of a bird's eye view, you know, the overall situation that Akira has provided. But another thing, the way that the buildings, their, their conditions is sort of known in the city is like narratively. And so there's these stories, you know, in Philadelphia. One of the, the big headlines over the last few years is the teacher Leah DeRusso, who was diagnosed with mesothelioma, uh, which was, you know, connected to the asbestos in Meredith Elementary, which the school district, you know, within, I think, a few years of that story breaking, knocked the whole building down and now is planning to rebuild it. You know, but then you have one of the sort of leading schools in the district, Palumbo, uh, the ceiling caves in from rainwater uh, a few years ago. Uh, and then every week, another school is shut down because of asbestos. You know, they find asbestos and they have to shut the school down and then the students have to go somewhere else. They have to bus the students to other places and, and it's extremely disruptive. And this is both traditional public schools and charter schools. The story of Franklin, Franklin Learning Center, you know, particularly for our paper in the climate crisis, they had just opened this really wonderful solar panel research center for students to uh, do work on solar uh, technologies, you know, as students, 
But then they found asbestos in the building, and now the building, I think, is indefinitely closed, or at least closed for a year and a half. Um, so you, you try to make this kind of progress, but the buildings keep shutting down, and every week is an, another headline. And it, it was happening before the pandemic. There was sort of this pandemic crisis in Philly before the coronavirus pandemic, and that was the asbestos situation. I mean, just going to some of those stories, when a school closes down and you say the students end up getting bused to other schools, can those schools sort of accept that intake? Like, you know, obviously school buildings can only have so many people in it. Um, so what happens when, when students get shipped out of their school because it closed from asbestos and get just plopped into another school? How does that work? From my understanding, it really doesn't work too well. So there was a recent case of high school that had asbestos exposure. This is um, Frankfurt in Northeast Philadelphia. They had asbestos exposure. The school district's like, okay, we have to close this school. Really didn't communicate very well with these uh, parents and students. This is March. There's state tests that students have to undergo very frequently for the upper classes. This is getting into college and going to prom and graduation after kind of being on lockdown and not being in the school for most of their high school career. So this was kind of a, a, a big hit. And the suggestion was to send them to another high school, Strawberry Mansion, which because of under enrollments in the 2013 closures was almost closed. Um, this is a school built for two to 3,000 students, currently has about 250. It also has multiple Lindbeck awards, teaching awards, a very successful like college attendance rate. So they do a really good job considering those circumstances, but because they're in a, an area of Philadelphia that is often narrated as having a lot of gun violence, parents did not want to send students there. Of the 200 or so who were supposed to show up, maybe 30 did on that day, and they opted instead to go to cyber school or school online. And so that, I think, is really the biggest concern. Our schools can definitely um, absorb them. Maybe not well. We have a dual crisis of being schools that are underutilized, like Strawberry Mansion can hold 2,000, is actually holding 200, but also having overcrowded classrooms because there's no operating funds to staff teachers for all of those <laughs> unfilled classrooms, right? And so the the combination of those schools, and that's some, something that's happened quite a bit, um, in Philadelphia, I think we had up to 12 schools closed last year because of asbestos. They are kind of allocated into different areas, but, you know, elementary schools, people like to walk and they have their routines and that really is disruptive, like Dave mentioned. High schools, if you have to pick up a sibling or you have a job, that's also a disruption. So it's multiple ripple effects, which is why the cyber option is so attractive to parents um, and students. So it's like, Again, these tensions, right? Like if students that go into these schools after they're sent elsewhere, that contributes to the declining enrollments, which is declining revenues and, and really kind of accelerates the, the risk of closure. So before we turn to, you know, some proposed ways to try and fund some of these school infrastructure rebuilds and renovations, I'm curious to know, since this is sort of what you're focused on in this paper, is how does this... Uh, let's call it a school emergency in Philadelphia, as you were just describing. How does it intersect with the climate emergency and climate change and sort of green politics today? I mean, to me, the crises, you know, they call it now a poly 
crisis, right? So there are multiple crises happening at the same time in the same space. But because they're kind of articulated like that together, they also present a kind of, I don't like to use the sort of a techno-optimistic language or, or technocratic language, but it's a kind of opportunity. And, and what I mean is that these buildings are dilapidated, they're dangerous, and the other thing about them is that they emit a ton of carbon into you know, our atmosphere. And I think the numbers on a recent Harvard study is that the school buildings in the United States generally emit something like the same amount of carbon that 15 million cars do every year. It's quite a lot. Um, and not only that, but the energy consumption that these schools have is one of their highest costs on a year-to-year -year basis. So not only are they spending a ton of money uh, on these facilities, that, but the, the facilities are also putting a ton of the, the carbon into the air. And, you know, I think about this, and it, it, I haven't actually found a really clear way to articulate just what a kind of mind-bending problem this is. But, you know, for instance, you have in these schools where the windows don't open and there's no HVAC on these increasingly hot days where the, the temperature is just rising, rising, rising. People um, aren't able to breathe clearly. And there's also particulate matter in the air of all kinds that are, is unhealthy. We, you know, we have research to show that if HVAC is improved, if air is cleaner in classrooms, that attendance improves. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, actually, if you can imagine, uh, you go into a place and it's harder for you to breathe there, you're not going to want to go back. But at the same time, like the buildings are emitting this carbon to atmosphere and it's like choking off the students' futures at the same time, if that, that makes sense, right? Like these buildings are supposed to be the spaces for these young people to prepare themselves to learn uh, so that they can participate in a future society. But the building that they're in is contributing to the, the chaos and dystopian quality of the future that they're supposed to have. And, um, you know, I think that the reason I say that this is an opportunity is because, and this is where this paper kind of comes in a little bit, is there's a lot of, you know, in the, in the climate movement or environmental movement, you know, there's there's been a bit of a shift into, like, let's do this. Let's, let's actually... What is, what is it going to take to um, to try to decarbonize? And taking these buildings that need a ton of work seems like a great opportunity to uh, put in of de decarbonized types of uh, infrastructure. And then it becomes quite a hopeful situation, actually, when you start thinking about it in that framework. So that like the poly crisis in this particular aspect, you know, is quite dystopian in one sense. But the flip side of it is like that it's actually quite hopeful. And what you show in your article is that there were community groups, activist groups that actually did come together and propose solutions to the funding problem in this regard. And it was quite amazing. But as your paper shows that these two groups had slightly different takes on how to do it. They approached the problem from slightly different perspectives, even if they agreed with sort of what they were trying to achieve in the end. And so let's start with the group that I think you sort of call the Green New Deal for K-12 schools in Philadelphia. What was this group and what solution did they propose to funding this massive gap in Philadelphia's education system to renovate all of these buildings and build new infrastructure and make sure that it addressed these climate issues as you were just addressing, David? Yeah, so prior to the kind of creation of the Green New Deal for public schools, um, research report done by Planning Community Projects. Um, so Dave and I are authors on that report that was translated into legislation introduced by Representative Jamal Bowman in July 2021. 
And from there, you see groups kind of forming around this kind of network of Green New Deal support and legislation at different levels, at the state level and at the local level. So in Philly, there are a number of groups that sort of organize, and Dave and I both talk in the article about Our City, Our Schools, which is a, a member coalition of different educational justice groups. Part of those different sort of educational justice groups is a group called the Philly Healthy Schools Initiative. And Philly Healthy Schools Initiative is really kind of proactive. It's a multi kind of stakeholder group of, you know, technical experts, members of unions, um, environmentalists, etc., um, parents all coming together to think about what is needed to transform Philly schools from a really kind of like technical people-centered approach. So these are the hazards that are named and have to be removed. This is the data that we need. This is the sort of planning that is required, planning and thinking about, you know, that student that has to leave to pick up their sibling before they go to work and where their school's located and how they get there. Um, so they were really organizing and lobbying for this because of these frequent closures, whether they're permanent or temporary, that happen in Philadelphia schools. Um, after the Green New Deal legislation was introduced, uh, you see a few more groups coming in line, Philly DSA, a few other groups that kind of came together to really focus on getting safe and healthy schools within um, the city of Philadelphia. And so the Green New Deal is more of a large-scale intervention. So the money that is allotted as grants as opposed to loans or bonds are very much intended to go to these high-need, high-vulnerability school districts, right? So a Philadelphia, but also a San Antonio and a Los Angeles and a Miami communities that, as we call them, are on the front lines of the current climate crisis, right? But also, as they've alluded to, these sort of like policy crises of racial injustices, educational injustices, climate injustices, etc. So they are, you know, drowning in debt, can't cover their operating costs, definitely don't have like the capacity, both from like a technical and state and bureaucracy perspective, or the financial capital to sort of deploy these interventions that are needed. Um, to green these schools. So by retrofitting, putting in more energy efficient, getting to zero net carbon for all of our public school facilities, uh, we're helping them reduce their operating costs, as David alluded to, with energy being sort of high cost for them. And again, bringing more students and staff, lessening turnover with teachers and principals and students as well by having schools that are comfortable that they want to be in and stable enough that they're open, you know, for the full duration of the school year without interruption. So that was really, again, as I kind of mentioned in the beginning of this, because the federal government is giving such a small proportion, you know, less than 1% of school district budgets come from the federal government, this was like an ideal intervention, right? We're considering schools as infrastructure. The climate crisis is going to impact everyone. There's 100,000 public schools in the United States. There's one in every neighborhood, right? This is a way to make green, healthy, safe spaces for the community. Can function as resilience hubs in times of crises and emergency. Really trying to put all of that. We see it as a jobs program. We see it as, you know, something that is warrants the large federal intervention. 
um, that was entrusted. And so certainly, and Dave can talk more about the, the alternative approach to funding green interventions and green infrastructure for public schools, but this one was really meant to leverage the spending capacity of the federal government. What that looked like, like at the local and state scale, we can talk about later as well. Yeah. And so, and before we turn to the, the alternative side, you know, you call this approach the fiscal approach to a big green state, I think is the phrase you use. You know, you're talking about how this, this is reliant on federal grants. Now, was this money actually available or was it sort of trying to advocate the federal government to open up new avenues for grants to sort of fund schools as part of its sort of, you know, climate emergency funding that I think the Biden administration had been talking about at some point? Yeah, this was definitely meant to take advantage of the federal government's desire to spend on infrastructure. COVID is happening. People are, are trying to get things back online where we have this infrastructure crisis that's been in existence for a while. We were starting to have a, a labor crisis, continue to have a labor crisis. So this was really, we thought, going to land in a way that resonated with a, a, a diverse group of interests and stakeholders. Because of COVID, I want to say, even though it's kind of like risky, but I don't think it's inappropriate, there was a huge backlash on public school spending. The first came with, you know, funds for COVID for schools, particularly for facilities that came with the CARES Act and ARP. And um, most school districts couldn't spend the funds that were allotted to them. And so as a result, the money is seen as, you know, these districts don't want it, when in reality, they couldn't spend it in the two to four years that they had. And so, you know, there was money in the infrastructure bill um, for schools, and that was the first thing cut. And so politically, it just made it very difficult to advocate for it. I do believe that these funds can be made available. They're you know, minuscule over the course of 10 years, um, considering the benefits that'll come out of it. But um, yes, the idea was to kind of lean on the federal government because it's spending power relative to the school districts, localities, and states. So David, I want to bring you in to talk about the alternative to this big green state. You sort of contrast it with something called big green finance. And it's what you say is more of the, I think it's the monetary route rather than the fiscal approach. How does this big green finance address or could address some of the issues in Philadelphia school spending and infrastructure? I'm convinced by modern monetary theory to some degree that, you know, in a sense that the um, because the federal government has its own treasury, you know, and its own bank and its own mint, it prints its own currency. It's not about uh, finding new money. It's just about pl- placing political value uh, on certain kinds of spending or not. You know, as we see that the, there's a, a new billion dollars for Ukraine war spending every whatever every every time you read a headline. But you know, when it comes to school buildings, it's like, oh, oh God, we need new taxes. Blah blah blah. Yeah. So I'm pretty convinced by that. And you know, the Green New Deal for schools legislation was a explicitly, as Akira was saying, grant financed program with more than a trillion dollars put put towards physical and social infrastructure. Uh, towards these uh, projects, you know, that we're talking about. So the way that the grant works, right, is that the the federal government, you know, through all of the the twists and turns and Byzantine little channels, uh, that it it reaches out into all of the 13,000 school districts in the United States, you know, it it sends the money. Uh, There's all kinds of, you know, regulatory uh, compliance features of this. But you get the money, you spend it, and that's that. But the, and that's that's typically what's called the fiscal uh, approach, you know, the, it's a, tr- a transfer of funds, 
And the other side of, uh, of public finance, or if, if you watch uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know, the thing that's going on behind Ben Stein on the chalkboard there is like fiscal and monetary policy. Like that's what that's what they're so bored about. But the, so the other side is monetary policy. And, you know, generally speaking, monetary policy has to do with the flow of credit. That is to say, like loans, money that comes, you have to pay back uh, somehow and how expensive credit is, let's say. And the key institution there, rather than, it's like an entirely different apparatus, like a section of the repressive apparatus in the United States. And it's also a totally different flow of revenue with a completely different kind of, I think, politics around it, even though we actually find in the paper, um, there's some similarities, you know, uh, in terms of the log jams and the problems um, that come from these two different approaches. But okay, so what's the sort of finance approach? Instead of grants from the federal government, you go through the Federal Reserve. And this, I guess I can talk about it in terms of the campaign and the grouping uh, that was pushing for this kind of demand on the Federal Reserve. The context here is, again, the pandemic. And in the pandemic, the Federal Reserve decided to, you know, take what they called a bazooka approach to the economic crisis. I think that Thankfully, a lot of the bigwigs, the ruling class people kind of learned from the last big crisis of 2008. It's like, let's not be vanilla about our approach here. Let's just let's just do everything we can. And um, they took out all the stops. And one of the stops that they took out in their approach at the Federal Reserve was to create facilities, programs that would create liquidity in different markets that were, you know, going to going to crash. Essentially, everyone was going to get freaked out in those markets, pull their money out, the bottom was going to fall. And then you have like a real, uh, another huge uh, financial crisis on your hands. One of these markets is the credit market for credit and loans where people buy and sell loans, you know, at, at interest prices and all other kinds of fees. And the submarket of that is the municipal credit market or what's known as the municipal bond market, because the word bond is typically used, you know, when an entity like a school district is taking out a loan. They're kind of bonded to their creditors using the full faith and credit of the um, of the district to pay back the money. And, you know, everyone was freaked out that this source of credit that is going to places like public school districts in the United States, we tend to not think about it in the, in the U.S., but actually public school districts have to sell themselves as commodities on the private credit markets to private creditors uh, and lenders to be able to get the revenue that they need for capital expenditure. That is to say, their school facilities. Um, that's where that's where the revenue comes from for their buildings. Uh, Two thirds of school districts in the United States go directly uh, to the, the municipal bond market as borrowers. You can find them as investment opportunities on Bloomberg terminals. You know, all kinds of uh, geriatric retirees put their money into school bonds. Um, as fixed income investments. And, you know, if, if your public elementary school needs a new playground, it's typically being financed through Wall Street in precisely that way, which is a hugely expensive and, you know, in my own work, I call it a toxic finance. And we're going back to our conversation before, you know, the, when you ask, what's the problem with the Philadelphia school buildings and Akira said money, you know, the kind of Destin Jenkins, who's a, a historian, uses racial capitalism as a framework to talk about municipal finance. He says, the bond market that's the spider in the web uh, of this particular problem. So that's just a sort of lay of the land. So going back to the pandemic, the, the Fed does something it's never done before, which was something that was always within its uh, legal purview to do, but never did, which was to create a facility for municipal liquidity. That is to say, municipal governments could go to the Federal Reserve and borrow directly from the Federal Reserve rather than 
going to the, the credit market. There was a facility uh, where a, a public entity, rather than selling itself as an investment commodity on the private credit market, it could just go <laughs> to the country's um, reserves and say, hey, could I have a loan and then structure it. Um, that way, and the kind of this just blew everyone's mind. You know who who was who follows these things um, because it was like, uh, yeah. I mean, to the people who have been doing heterodox uh, finance and, and and all kinds of public finance, uh, more left leaning people, they've been banging this drum for for years, if not decades. It suddenly was a reality, and you know there was a lot of politics around this because the conservative interpretation of this facility was. It's just going to backstop the credit market, which just means like we're creating this as a safety net so that the private market can continue to do its thing and nobody's going to be afraid that it's just going to fall, all fall apart. But the thing about it is, that, is it had this, we could call progressive interpretation or maybe left interpretation where it's not just a backstop, it's a bank. You know, it's a, a kind of national infrastructure bank, which is a proposal that, you know, has been in circulation. Uh, for a little while now. So that would mean that the municipality of Philadelphia could go to this facility and borrow money directly to fix its schools. That's the idea. That's right. You know, in principle, the school district of Philadelphia, who has a, a CFO and a business office and, and their whole job, in, in addition to putting the budget together, is to actually create these very complex loan deals to be able to get this credit revenue for their buildings instead of paying credit rating agencies and paying uh, bond consultants and uh, financial investment firms and uh, underwriter discounts to private banks like Wells Fargo and um, JP Morgan. These are all the people who are involved in public school finance, by the way. You know, instead of doing all that, in principle, they could just go to the Fed you know, but the thing about it, and this is this is where the movement comes in. Um, I was a part of a, a sort of smallish socialist group called the Local Initiative Local Action Committee, Democratic Socialist Group. That was um, uh, it, our sort of thing was to join coalitions, and we had a little education working group. And our idea was like, why can't we target the Fed to make the demand to let the municipal liquidity facility open, be open to school districts as uh, borrowers and make the terms of the loans that they provide at the MLF very good. That is to say, no cost long term. So there's no interest rate and you don't have to pay it back in, in two years. You don't have to pay it back in 20 years. You can pay it back in 99 years because it's all possible. I mean, effectively, you kind of have to pay it back, but it's, it's, it's like it's seen as a loan because it's going through the conduit of the federal of the Federal Reserve through a monetary policy rather than that fiscal approach, right? But yeah, I mean, it, in a way, it's us trying to get the government to help us. Help us, please, you know? And one route of doing that is the fiscal route. And you go to Congress and you try to have all the Congress people hash it out. It goes back to the Senate, to the executive branch, blah, blah, blah. But the Federal Reserve has an entirely different political structure. It's subject to, you know, um, obviously it's subject to policies that come out of the the, the Congress, but um, they can act in with this independence. Well, what happened was we got into, we were almost like a sub-coalition. So Lilac was a member of our city, our schools too. And as another group, the um, Action Center for Race and the Economy, another member of that coalition. And they had a, a campaign called Cancel Wall Street. And the whole idea behind Cancel Wall Street was precisely what I was just sort of saying, which is to say, we we shouldn't be going to Wall Street for these things. Let's just dump them and and use the power of the state essentially. And so Lilac and Acre, the Action Center, got together and decided to kind of combine 
these projects into a cancel Wall Street for transformative green infrastructure financing for Philadelphia schools. And what we planned was we had a political education workshop event where we were just sort of like working through all the ideas of this because it's so esoteric. There's so many levels to it. It's complex and it's meant to be complex. You know, the, the ruling class maintains power this way. And then um, the other thing was we had a, a, and all of this is online because of all the shutdowns and the coronavirus. Uh, and then we had a kind of an email action and it was an, it was an email action on a, a Zoom event where we had people come and talk about these issues. And then we were targeting the president of the Philadelphia Federal Reserve, Patrick Harker, and board member, very prominent board member, John Fry, to advocate for these demands. That is to say, uh, MLF, the, the Fed, let in school districts and give them very generous loans because the school buildings are so terrible. You know, we sent him a bunch of emails and it really it blew up their email box. And you can imagine people like at the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank aren't used to being targeted in this manner. They don't get a lot of these kinds of um, emails. And so there was an immediate response from them, like, you know, requesting a meeting, like, let's talk about this. But you kind of plug back into the polit political situation of 2020, very contentious presidential campaign happening. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Is the country going to fall apart um, in November of 2020, Biden versus Trump? That was sort of the, the crucible in which this conversation would happen between people like me and Akira, uh, who were working. I was working on this MLF thing, but I was also helping with the Green New Deal. And she was a member of OCOS, knew what we were doing uh, on the the Fed side, but also working on the grants, you know, where we just sort of noticed this thing, which is like, this is, these are two very clear paths that we have to decide what we're going to do, because it takes a certain amount of energy, resources, people, and time to be able to craft the campaigns that would push for these kinds of demands. When it came to this big green finance route that I'm describing now, there was that political fight over the MLF that I was talking about before, the backstop versus direct lending debate. There was a Pennsylvania senator named Pat Toomey, who's just an arch conservative, just pro-capitalist, a nightmare. He, uh, you know, wanted to just kill the MLF, end it. It shouldn't exist, he said. And he was able to smuggle in the, um, in, I believe it was like one of the relief package legislations at the end of 2020 in December, he was able to, to get to pressure Schumer to include uh, a piece in that legislation that ended the MLF and sort of salted the earth for it to never come about again. Um, so, so then the, the demands of the campaign obviously became moot because the, uh, the, the facility was killed, uh, I would say, prematurely. So that sort of closed the door to receiving funding through the MLF. What about the Green New Deal? Has Philadelphia received any money for school infrastructure through that program as a grant? And maybe, Akira, I'll bring you back in. Uh, yeah, so the Green New Deal didn't actually pass out of the House. It was um, amongst the sort of Green New Deal legislation that's been introduced. It does have the highest number of co-sponsors. However, there is another kind of longstanding facilities bill and that was introduced, and it is the Rebuilding American Schools Act, sorry, um, RASA, as it's called. And that has um, full support of all the House Democrats. It's um, standard. It just really kind of establishes the federal government as having a role in um, supporting school infrastructure. 
you know, largely on the, the bonds and loan spaces, making that um, funding and support available. No sort of distinction about greening or climate. Of course, those, um, you know, entities like the Center for Green Schools was involved in Rasa, so it's not like it's anti-green. Um, it's just not specified um, in the language of the bill um, and doesn't necessarily target high vulnerability um you know, low wealth school districts in the way that Green New Deal was, was focused on that. So those are just sort of two distinctions between those, um, two bills. Uh, but that bill has been an, an effort that has also like bipartisan support, but is because of the kind of overwhelming unpopularity of the federal government getting involved with public schools, um, has also, um, stalled. So there is not currently funding available for the school district. The school district has only benefited from CARES Act and ARP funding. Um, there are some smaller programs at the state level introduced by our state rep, Elizabeth Fiedler, who's been a big supporter. Um, you know, and so there are advocates in the state legislature who are eager, um, including State Senator Vincent Hughes, who are very eager to provide funding from the state to the Philadelphia School District for facilities improvements. Uh, but the kind of tensions that have always existed between the city of Philadelphia and the state of Pennsylvania uh, means that that money is often tied up and, and not actually coming through when you need it. So. It's such a tragic sort of story on the one hand, where there's clear problems, health problems, environmental problems, learning problems, these two solutions that are proposed, and then neither of them really take hold. Um, so it is rather tragic on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's kind of quite interesting about how innovative some of these groups have become with how they're going to try and solve problems that are, like you said, part of this poly crisis. So I guess to end the conversation, you know, what do you think some of the implications are of this story that you have sort of lived through and researched and now you're telling in an academic paper? What, what are the implications both for, you know, the Philadelphia school system, but more broadly about how we think about the climate crisis, the school crisis, and finance. I was just going to say, just as a sort of postscript to that previous conversation, that and Akira might disagree with this, I'm not sure, but I've been going around thinking and saying anyway that the Inflation Reduction Act has what could be thought of as like uh, ghosts of these two tendencies, you know, these two pieces, uh, approaches in it, though they are completely uh, differently configured. Actually, there are opportunities for the School District of Philadelphia to receive fiscal and monetary support for uh, green infrastructure through that legislation. Whether it's effective, whether the district will go for it, whether the conditions will be right for it to succeed, we don't know. But I do think that those energies aren't quite lost. And I guess as a way of kind of backing into an answer of your, just your question now, you know, maybe one implication of telling this story in this paper is that though these, though these movements failed, you know, though they did not succeed in their demands, forgetting her name, Eve um, Weinbaum, I think, has a great concept in the, in the historic, history and theory of movements called the successful failure, um, which is uh, there are failed failures and there are successful failures. And I'm wondering if, you know, the, the things that survive in the Inflation Reduction Act you know, could be evidence of a kind of successful failure of these movements, you know, in the sense that there's there's always people on the ground who are really pushing for this kind of stuff, thinking through this stuff, trying to take it on from a movement perspective, rather than this technocratic, esoteric kind of approach. And 
So I think, yeah, I think that that's one lesson, you know, that movements fight, uh, movements create a lot of important political energy, and even in these very erudite realms. Yeah, no, I agree with Dave that this was a successful failure. One of the goals outside of like making schools healthy, healthy and safety and safe for, for students and teachers was really just kind of getting more eyes on the problem. Um, and framing it within the context of these different crises. Like, if you don't solve, you know, this is a really kind of intersectional issue here of, you know, thinking about race, thinking about gender, thinking about class, ability, climate, all at one time, and understanding that the schools are really kind of like a loci for that. And investment in these schools can really just have the same way that a school closure has such like devastating ripple effects for communities and cities. Um, you know, investing in a school as like a healthy and safe space can also kind of have these positive ripples. And so the more we kind of get people thinking like that, that investing in public schools is a good thing and closing public schools is a bad thing that to me like that ideological win is is also really helpful and i feel like every year we kind of gain a bit more momentum um you know we have movements like uh, gen z for change and sunrise who are really um supportive and and i think that's kind of where it needs to be is very kind of centered on youth voices on workers voices teachers voices parent voices um and so that's kind of what i'm hoping at least to see um, transpire over the next few years. Well, David Backer and Akira Drake Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Really a pleasure to talk today. David Backer is an associate professor at Westchester University of Pennsylvania, and Akira Drake Rodriguez is an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Their new article is entitled Movements at the Fiscal Monetary Crossroads, which was published in the Journal of Urban Affairs. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Nkunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shockdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.